Well, tonight we're going to get a look at the third poem that is found in Lamentations. And as we talked about in our introduction to this book, we observe that it is this third lament that uh, is the pinnacle of the, this book of Lamentations. That it's all building up to this crescendo and this is really uh, the peak of it all. And one of the giveaways of that is that there are 66 verses rather than 22. All of the other poems in Lamentations 1, 2, 4, and 5 are all 22 lines, 22 verses. But this one is three times that as it has 66 lines. The challenge is... Uh, under something this large, I'd have the tendency to say, all right, let's break this up into a few lessons and we'll do it, do it in pieces. However, it's a poem that's meant to be all by itself and it's supposed to be in one unit that you gather all of that. And so obviously I can't uh, overturn every stone that is in, in this, but I hope to be able to give you uh, a, a lens and a framework for how to look at this and that you would go back on your own and spend some time uh, really in this great lament that Jeremiah, that I believe Jeremiah then offers uh, as he is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the grief and suffering and despair and pain that has come from that. And you know the structure here as well, uh, absolutely impressive that uh, when you have each of the three lines beginning with the successive letter in, in the alphabet, so it, three times, verses 1, 2, and 3 in our language would have been all started with the letter A. And verses 4, 5, and 6, all three of those lines in our English language would have started at the letter B all the way through. If you remember in school, that was hard enough to do at one line each, and you get to some letters that are pretty tough. Uh, pretty amazing here that you have here the Hebrew alphabet all the way through, and it's in triplicate. And that's why you have 66 lines, because there's 22 letters. Uh, in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, the first 20 verses really are an expression of the loss of hope that uh, the prophet here is expressing, particularly in regards and reflecting what the nation is experiencing at this time. These first 20 verses of the poem uh, express an intensity of the author's pain. And we'll just get a snapshot of a few of the things that he says. But notice how verse 1 even opens. I am a man, the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. And so you already get a sense of this great anguish that the author is experiencing. In, in verse 4, he has made my... My flesh and my skin waste away, and he has broken my bones. And so here is a, another picture of the anguish and grief uh, that he is experiencing. And the author is not expressing that he is looking at himself and is seeing all of his broken bones and his skin is, is hanging off or anything like that. But remember that we are in poetry here, and he's really describing the the horror of what he is experiencing, how deep the grief and the, the anguish is uh, in his life. And the, in all kinds of Old Testament poetry and Old Testament language will use the concept of, of broken bones that means that there would be no hope for the future, that really all hope is lost. And that's what you see in each of these successive lines as you read through these 20 verses 
Just notice how he continues to describe this pain that he is experiencing. Notice in verse 5, he has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. And by the way, recognize when he speaks of this he, he's talking about God. That God has struck him with this grief and affliction so that he feels that he is enveloped then with bitterness and he is swallowed up then by this tribulation. Verse Verse 7, he has walled me about so that I cannot escape and he has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. So here he describes himself and he says, I am walled in, I'm chained down, I'm, I'm blocked off. This is how he feels in all of this grief that he's just stuck. Look at what has happened, Lord. And I'm completely stuck. I'm walled in. I'm alone. And how am I supposed to be able to deal with all of this grief? Verse 10. He is like a bear, lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove it into my kidneys, the arrows of his quiver. And so here is this poetic language described like being shot through with arrows. That's the the kind of pain that that he is feeling. And it begins to just come to a, a, a boy point when you notice in verse 17 my soul my life is bereft of peace I have forgotten what happiness is and so I just want you to get a sense then of look how bad it is it's, I don't even know what happiness is anymore and it feels like God has shot me through with arrows I'm walled in chained down cut off blocked in all that I feel is anguish and tribulation I'm swallowed up in bitterness my bones are broken there is no hope it just seems that everything is at loss and verse 18 really then puts it all on the table and he says so I say my Endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. That's pretty weighty. To say, this is really the the final statement of it all. 20 lines just to come to this great conclusion that his grief is basically so great. It is so much that he feels so worn by God that his strength now is lost. His strength is gone. His endurance is gone. And really the the strongest words of all to say his hope is gone. Just as his endurance has perished, so has now his hope. And his hope he does not have anymore. And so in going through that, I I want us to just take a step back and and get a sense of what he's saying. Because I think for any of us who have gone through difficulty, you can relate to these kinds of poetic images of just being swallowed up in bitterness, hurting through in grief. It feels like your bones are broken, that your kidneys are worn out, that all of these kinds of images that you get to a point where you say, I I just don't feel like there's any hope. There's no more happiness ahead of me. My future is lost. My grief is great. My endurance is gone. I'm not going to be able to make it another day. And that's where the author's at in in all of this pain. Now, what is very powerful about what this lament does then is you will notice that verse 18 and verse 19, that's not the end of the poem. 
And I think this is really what makes this message by the author so important. Because so often we'll go through these kinds of statements and kinds of feelings and we'll go through this pain and grief and distress and we'll feel these very feelings swallowed up in bitterness. My, my endurance is gone. God is not listening as he describes here. God is not hearing my prayers. He's not hearing a thing that I have to say. So I feel alone. I feel hopeless. And we'll usually then just stop right there. And sit in that grief and wallow in that pain and just go, well, God doesn't care anymore and nobody cares anymore and I am all alone and my hope is lost and my strength is over and so I'm just not going to mess with this anymore and we give up on God. Some even go to the point of giving up on life and they just end right there. But notice that's not what the author does. The author does not come to this point where he speaks of all of this suffering and all of this pain and all this grief that he is enduring and say, well, you know, okay, period, end of story. I'm done with things. Great is my grief. Notice what we're going to see here is now the author is going to to take a turn. And verses 21 to 24, suddenly there is this renewal of hope, even though he has expressly said that he feels like that God is not listening. You saw that back in verse 8, though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. So he says, I I don't think that God is hearing what I'm saying. And then he draws this conclusion, my happiness is forgotten. And verse 18, my endurance has perished so that my hope and so has my hope from the Lord. He's now going to find hope in the midst of all of that pain. So notice what he says he's going to do. Verse 21 is really interesting where he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So here he is, and he is in all of this suffering, all of this pain, and all of this misery. And he steps back and says, okay, now here's what I'm going to do about that. I'm feeling all of this pain. I feel like that God is not listening. I feel like my hope is gone. I feel like I'm swallowed up in bitterness. I have the arrows going through my very soul. But notice he steps back and says, I'm going to commit to an act of the will. And I'm not just going to act on my emotions here. I love this this talk. He says, this I call to mind. What he says he's going to do is, I am going to put my mind on something, and verse 21, and therefore I have hope. I'm going to put my mind in a particular place. And by putting my mind there, this is what's going to now give me hope to go forward. Even though he's expressed 19 lines of having no hope, that he's in complete bitterness, that God does not seem to listen. He says, here's what I'm going to do. And so what I would suggest he's doing is he's preaching to himself in the time of his despair. He steps back and says, all right, here's what I will do. And this is really important. We, we live in a time right now that really just puts a premium on emotions. That emotions rule the day, that emotions rule life. How you feel is what you should do. 
how you feel is how you should act. It's how you behave. How you feel is essentially truth. (laughs) If you feel that way, then it must be you might have heard the phrase true for you, right? That's the our truth now is all based on emotion. And I want you to see that there is a godly response that while in great severe grief and pain and anguish, There is the ability in the midst of that ball of hurt and emotion for a person like the author here to take a step back and say, okay, I'm feeling all of these things and it feels like all hope is lost and that God is not listening and bitterness has surrounded me and God is shooting arrows through me. But I'm going to call this to mind so that I can have hope. And notice what he's going to now call to mind. Verse 22, three things he says. Verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. What a line that he now lays out here as he takes a step back. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ends. It never ceases. That God is faithful and that God's covenant, faithful, steadfast love never stops. His compassion never stops. His mercy never comes to an end. They never fail. And what the author seems to be doing is simply saying, I'm going to remember the faithfulness of God. I am going to call to mind the fact that God is faithful. That God always keeps His word. That He has faithful, steadfast love. And I will recall that faithfulness that God has shown to me in my life in the past. That he'll look back at those things and go, God has been faithful before. God has been with me before. He has carried me through before. He has maintained that covenant, steadfast love for me in the past. And so therefore, I will set my mind on this idea as well, that his love never fails and that I will think about what God has done for me, the good that he has done for me and how he continues to be good for me. And so I love what he does here. He sets up almost the conflict. Here's how my emotions feel, but I am going to call to mind that God is faithful. I'm going to call to mind his steadfast covenant love. I'm going to remember what God has done for me as an individual. And he would be speaking also for Israel as a people, his faithfulness and what God has done for them. And I'm going to use that as the means by which that verse 21 says, this is how I'm going to have hope is I'm going to recall the steadfast love of the Lord. Second there, next line, verse 23 in speaking about the steadfast love and mercies of God, he says in verse 23, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness and so the steadfast love and the mercies of God that they are presented as renewed and given to him every morning and that really is a great declaration of the will of the mind in the face of great darkness in your life in the face of great pain and suffering and anguish is that every day presents a new opportunity to experience God's love again. That we don't know what God is going to do for us in this very day. Here is a new day. 
How will God be faithful to me today? What good could he accomplish for me today? And here is this picture of new hope being offered to the individual based upon the compassion of God. And so while life can look hopeless and the future can seem bleak and it seems like all is lost as he is even experienced and expressed in these 19 verses, you notice what he says is, you know, there's a new day tomorrow. Every day, new mercies can abound. Every day is just another day for God to show His compassion, to show His love, and to show His faithfulness. I'm not going to give up on God. I'm not going to give up on my hope because I know that there is a, a, an opportunity to see God's mercy uh, yet again. And so I'm not going to worry about the future of all the things that could go possibly wrong or how am I going to get through this, that God's mercy is there. I know I've said this to you before. I still believe it's true for me, and I believe it's probably true in your life as well, that I believe one of the great challenges that makes trials of life as challenging as they are is because there is no opportunity to know the outcome. That's what's so frustrating. How is it all going to turn out? You know, if Job could have known chapter 42, it would have been a whole lot better to go through chapters 1 to 41. You know, if you know how it's all going to play out in the end. The hard part is you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You don't know if it's going to turn out for good. You don't know if it's going to turn out for disaster. And so here he's just setting that aside and just saying, you know, every morning is just a new day with God. It's just a, a fresh outpouring of God's compassion and mercy, and God's faithfulness is great. And so I will just look forward to the opportunity to experience the faithful, loving kindness of God for yet another day. And so what a great picture to say that His mercies are new every morning, that every day this is an opportunity to enjoy the covenant promises and loving kindness of God. And that leads to verse 24, the third line that He's going to give himself hope. And I love what he does there. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. <laughs> Again, you know, today they'll say, if you talk to yourself, you're crazy. Well, if you're doing it out loud, you're probably right. But he's doing it within himself, right? As he says, so here's what my soul says. Speak to yourself and I will tell myself, the Lord is my portion. Now, that idea doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because we don't really have that concept. But remember, what God had done regarding his covenant promises that were given to Abraham and his descendants was that a portion was this inheritance that God was going to give each of the tribes and each of the Israelites. This is your portion. This is your place. This is your land. And the essence of that is, is that God was going to provide for you. He's going to give for you. This is going to be your land and I will take care of you. And it would describe then their dependence upon God to care for them. And so that's what he's doing is he steps back and says, you know what my inheritance is, my portion is, my lot in life. It's not the dirt, it's the Lord. My hope is in the Lord. My trust is in the Lord. He is going to care for me. He is going to provide for me. He's my inheritance. He's my portion. He's my life. That's all that matters. And so that's what he says. I'm telling myself that. 19 verses of I'm in bitterness and God is not listening and I'm in pain and my hope is lost. And then he turns around and says, so here's what I have to tell myself. 
(laughs) The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance. And notice the end of verse 24. Therefore, I will hope in him. Since God is my portion, since he is my everything, he's my inheritance. He's what matters. Here is the author saying, we've lost it all. God has destroyed Jerusalem. He's destroyed the covenant. He's destroyed the land. Everything is ruined. But he says, you know what matters? God. That I still have a relationship with God. He's my portion. He's all, everything else can be gone, but I still have Him. He's the inheritance that I need. We have a, a saying in our culture, hope springs eternal. It doesn't feel like that when you're in a trial. It doesn't feel like that when you're in suffering. And just as we modified this morning's uh, cultural statements about keep calm and fill in the blank of what's going to carry you on, We need to modify hope springs eternal of, well, yes, hope springs eternal if your hope's focused on the Lord. That's where that comes from. That's the hope that he has. He says it there at the end of verse 21. I'm going to have hope because I'm going to have in my mind the steadfast love of the Lord that his mercies never come to an end. Those mercies are renewed to me every morning that God's faithfulness is great and that the Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance. That's why I can have hope even though for two laments and so far 19 lines of the the third lament, it looks like all hope is lost. And he is suffering with great pain and great difficulty that the author is able to call upon himself to live one day at a time in the mercies and steadfast love of God. And so it's a beautiful picture here of how we give ourselves hope and give ourselves courage in the Lord. And that's why you have those passages that talk about uh, the Lord is my strength and that we would stand firm in the Lord is that we are moving our eyes and our hope onto the promises of God and the faithfulness of God to carry us through temptations, trials, suffering, loss, difficulty that God has given us all of these things so that we would then have hope in him even when things look completely hopeless. And how often life can very much do that very thing to us, that it feels like all hope is lost and that God is not there. And yet here he is able to tell himself, I know God is there. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. There's no way that would ever be shut off where we would never have access before God, that we could not come to him and that he would not hear us. So it's a great picture that he lays out. And so now after doing that, he's going to proclaim hope in verses 25 to 29. In these verses, you see him take the self-talk, if you will, that he gives himself. And he says, all right, here's what I told myself. Here's what my soul said. Here's what I was expressing to myself. Now from verse 25 to verse 29, he is now going to tell himself and other people about the hope that exists. And one important thing that would be to do in the midst of the the burning ruins of the destruction of Jerusalem and temple, to turn around and tell everybody, look, there is a reason for hope. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So here he says, here's what we have to do. We have to wait for God. 
We sit back and we seek the Lord and we seek out his salvation and we wait for God to deliver us and to help us. And so here is this patient endurance, this sitting back and waiting for God to act, that the God is going to help, that God is going to respond. He believes that, but you have to wait for that. In our difficulty, you know, we want to do all right, fix it, fix it right now, right? It's got to fix it today. Okay, I'll wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow it will just be all better. God waved the magic wand to make it all better. And that's just not the case. That here is a waiting for God, a waiting for a resolution, waiting for God to do something about them. You think about how long it took for restoration of Israel. We've been studying some of that with Chronicles. We're going to be waiting decades We're waiting decades and decades and decades before they're going to be able to observe the faithfulness of God to bring the people back on the land. It isn't always going to be today or tomorrow or even within our own lifetime that things are just going to be magically fixed by God. But that those who trust in the Lord wait for him and they put their hope in him along with that. I thought verse 27, very interesting. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Notice in the midst of all of this suffering, he's now just made a second declaration about how this is good. Verse 26, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He says, all right, we're just going to wait for God on this. We're going to allow this to God. I'll clue you into this morning's lesson from Philippians, right? Of All right, we're putting it in prayer. We're giving it to God. And now we're waiting. God's going to take care of this. That's what he says. It's good to wait. And then notice verse 27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. What an interesting declaration. Almost a proverb to be able to say it's good to experience this while you're young it's going to help you later on <laughs> to go through these things to prepare yourself for a life that going through turmoil and grief and pain that the earlier you do that as a youth only will help you for the future times probably because if you just have had it easy all the days of your youth, you're going to get blindsided one day when things go radically wrong and you're going to go, well, I didn't know life could be bad. <laughs> I didn't know it could be hard. I didn't know that it could be difficult. He says it's good to be able to have this to happen to us, to experience these things, to develop that endurance and that patience and develop these godly characteristics because it is through grief and through pain and through suffering that we come to depend upon God. And that's what he's expressing here is I feel like all hope is lost. So you know what I better do? I better depend upon God and I'm going to tell myself to depend upon God. And so often we allow emotion to rule the day. Well, this is the way I feel. And so I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like praying anymore. I don't feel like reading the scriptures. I just feel miserable. And if you only know this, what he does, he feels just like that. And he turns around and says, well, when I feel like that, you know what I do? Here's what I tell myself. (laughs) Steadfast love of the Lord and that this is good for me to bear these things because it pulls me closer to God. It draws me into him. In fact, verses 28 and 29, he basically is saying, so I'm going to accept the will of God and keep my mouth shut. (laughs) 
I will close my mouth and I'll humble myself before God. I'll put my face in the dust and I'm not going to complain about it because I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to believe in his promises and his steadfast love. And so I will wait for him and I will expect him then in my faithfulness as I wait for him that he will respond and that he will be the help that he has promised to be. And so he expresses that to remember that we need to be humble in heart, servants of the Lord, submitting to the Lord to bow before him and have hope in him. Verse 31, look at this. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Such an interesting statement here where he says, even in our grief, God is going to have compassion again. God is going to show this compassion toward us. And so God will not cast off forever. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I thought about a whole side sermon right here. But again, you're it's one poem. You got to stay in the box. But. I mean, isn't it just amazing that God can say that he has compassion for his people just to think about the reality of that, to use that kind of language, that compassion is all about being evoked with emotion that moves you to act. Here's God in compassion to his people. And yet he says here in in verse 33, he does not willingly afflict or aggrieve the children of men, but this has to happen Because God is just, and he expresses that from verses 33 to 39, that he talks about the justice of God, and God does not approve of these sinful things and sinful ways that the people have been committing. And so it is not God's joy or God's pleasure to bring about this justice that's happening that the author is looking at, but he knows that God is compassionate, and he will restore even though they are rightly receiving their due for their their sins. And so it's a great picture then of sometimes how God gets distorted as this, you know, angry God who's just waiting for you to take a false step so that he can barbecue you and he's just looking just to, you know, french fry you at a moment's notice. I love the language here that he says that that's not God. Uh, he doesn't willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. That's not, not his desire. The problem is our bad behavior. The problem lies with us. The sins that that we have committed, like verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should the living man complain a man about the punishment of his sins? Here he is saying, who's in the wrong? God or us? That's always us. It's not God. God's not in the wrong. He's always right. And so how are we going to complain to God about our circumstances or what we go through? We can't do it. We're the sinners. He's not. He's right. We're wrong. Again, I believe that's where Job's inversion happens in that in that narrative where he seems to essentially lay before the feet of God wrongdoing. If he would just come down here and see, then he would justify me and vindicate me. And it's like, uh -uh. he is always right. We are the ones that are in the wrong. And that's what the author is able to express here is that very picture of recognizing that the Lord does not cast off forever, that he is right and that he is just. And it is a great picture of the character of God, a beautiful picture that will hopefully keep us humble during such difficulties. It's so easy to fall into the temptation of 
shaking a fist at God and suggesting that God is wrong and that the grief that I'm experiencing is too difficult or too great. It is a reminder that God is always just. He is always in the right. He is always pure and he is holy and that everything we have in our lives is simply a grace poured out to us from God. And such beautiful words of Job that naked I came into this world and naked I go. So blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, if we came in naked and we're leaving naked, then everything in between was the grace of God. Everything that we have has been given to us by God. And so an expression of humility in that as he proclaims this hope to the people, which now is interesting because this leads him to prayer. Where earlier he said, that doesn't seem that God's listening. My, my prayers are shut out, he said earlier in this lament. Now in verses 40 to 51, you're going to observe him describing that he is going to hope in prayer. He's going back to the well and is going to pray to God some more. Two aspects of what he does. Number one, he begins in verse 40 by saying, we're going to examine ourselves. We're going to test ourselves. We know that we have been faithless. We know that we have done wrong. And so we're going to examine our own lives and recognize that we have done something that is wrong. And so that causes him to pray to God in such a way that he can express to God how woefully short he has fallen of the glory of God. How he has come so short of that. And so he's turning to the Lord, tearing his heart before God as you notice like verse 49 My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. (laughs) I love that. I'm going to keep crying out to my God, and I'm going to allow the tears to flow, and I'm just going to continue to examine and lift my hands and my hearts to the God in heaven, as verse 41 says. Until God looks down and sees as he is looking for God to respond. And so even though he feels that he is cut off from God, that he's been walled in, chained down, barricaded away from God, that doesn't stop his prayer life. He will continue to pray. We need that kind of dedication in prayer to continue to pray. How easy it is. All right. I prayed to God. Nothing happened. Okay, done. How God is always calling for persistence in prayer and always saying to pray without ceasing, to give these things to God. And how Paul, like we studied this morning, in everything to give him every prayer and petition before him. You see the author doing the same thing here, that he will continue to take his cause before God, continue to offer it before God because he has hope in God's steadfast love. He recognizes God's steadfast love and mercies are new each day. Which leads to the rest of the the lament from verses 52 to 66, really a hope for restoration. After describing this despair and describing this grief, he goes back to describing that he still feels that way. Like notice verse 52. I have been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me alive in the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head and I said, I am lost. It's an interesting description because that's actually very similar to what Jeremiah experienced physically. And so he may be even referencing what has happened to himself in the physical sense to speak of his emotional reality to say before God, it feels like all hope is lost. You read the book of Jeremiah, 
Here God had promised him that he was going to take care of him. And you get to one point, Jeremiah's like, hey, wait a minute. I thought you said you were going to take care of me. Here they are trying to arrest me and throwing me in the dungeon. They're throwing me in the cisterns and they're leaving me for dead. And you see this expression here of, I am going through suffering. And so even in his physical suffering, it seems to be an expression of his heart for what has happened with Jerusalem, an expression on behalf of the people as well, that even though he is hoping in prayer and hoping for restoration and is telling himself to hope in God and in the steadfast mercies of God, I want you to see he still feels despair. We should not be thrown by the idea that our feelings and our emotions over here are in complete despair and anguish. And yet we are in a mindset over here that speaks of, like Paul said, I can have joy in the Lord. I mentally am trusting in God, even though I hurt on the inside and I am in grief and I am in pain. But I know the mercies of God and I know the steadfast love of God and I know that he is faithful. But it feels like the waters have come over my head, that this is a natural expression that the follower of God. God has and you see him doing that here as you see he says the waters flew over my head but verse 55 I called on your name O Lord from the depths of the pit you heard my plea do not close your ear to my cry for help you came near when I called on you and you said do not fear a great expression that he says, you know, the Lord heard my cries. I kept praying, even though it felt like he wasn't listening. I felt like I was walled in, chained down. But in my time of despair, and even though it felt the water was going over me, God heard my prayer. God heard my cries. God came near. That's why I believe what you see in Philippians 4. The Lord is near, so do not be anxious. Here's the same principle being laid out right here by the author. God came near me. I continue to pray to God. I lay it before him. And so his hope then is in prayer and calling on the name of the Lord. And that's exactly what has happened is God has responded to him and has taken up his life and taken up his cause. Verse 58, he describes that, which leads to a real interesting ending. And again, I hope you can take the time to slowly go over these 66 lines beautiful lament but but the final three lines is really then an interesting place of hope where he now just kind of rests in the fact that he knows that God is going to take care of all of this that God is going to make all of this right that God will deal with the enemies that God will repay and you see that expressed in verse 64 very clearly you will repay them O Lord according to the work of their hands and he goes on to express that in the next couple of lines just declaring I know God you're going to take care of this it's one of the beautiful things that you see in the scriptures is that God is right and our hope in him as a sovereign God is that at the end of the day he is going to be a just God who will repay according to the deeds. Too often as Christians, we read those kinds of lines and we are fearful of that. We read, well, he's going to repay according to our deeds. And so then we get nervous about that. It's not supposed to be nervous for the people of God. It's supposed to be nervous for those who are the enemies of God's people and the enemies of God. God is going to repay. 
Everyone's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the things that they've done in the flesh, whether good or evil. And so there is a hope that is given to the people of God. And here is the author expressing that and saying, God's going to deal with them. Look at what they've done to me. They've afflicted this pain and grief in my life. I'm not going to be concerned about that. God has heard my pleas. He's heard my cries. God is going to take care of that. God will respond. Let me wrap up then with just a couple ideas then from from this third lament. It is a glorious lament. Just amazingly beautiful how he is able to move from despair to speaking to himself of hope to telling other people of hope while still feeling internally despair, crying out to God in prayer, knowing that God is going to repay eventually. There's his movement in this, this great lament. So number one, it reminds us that our lives are really not determined by some kind of cold and personal destiny, but that our, our lives are in the hands of the living God. That we have the opportunity to take our petitions and pleads and bring them before God and to know and believe and trust that our lives are in His hands. And that's where the author moves in this lament, is to be able to express that before God, that things are not just spinning out of control, that God is not asleep at the wheel, that He's not on vacation, but that He is active and that He hears, that He responds to His people, that He will act, and He puts His confidence and hope in that. That our lives then are in hands of the living God, and then our praise and our hope is motivated from the knowledge of some of these great truths that He's expressed. That the Lord is good and that the Lord is faithful. God's goodness is intrinsic to his very glory. I loved that in Exodus 34 when uh, you have Moses saying, I want to see your glory. And and God goes, all right, you can have my goodness pass by. This proclamation of his goodness happens. You can't see me, but... I'll express my goodness. That's the essence of his glory is that he is good, that he is right, he is faithful, that he is just. And so a compassionate God who cares about our circumstance, that he cares about our condition, that he cares about us. That's what makes those images like how God knows the hairs on your head, as Jesus would say. Why is he telling you that? I know all those things, but except that it is a compassionate God who cares about his children, is very concerned about their well-being and knows their condition and hears their cries for help. And so even though the author feels that all hope is lost, he is able to tell himself and he is able to tell others that the faithfulness of God is great and that his mercies are new every day. I hope that would be a rock for you and an encouragement for you through any difficult times. How often we will say that God is good, like online prayer has answered God is good. Notice the author, God hasn't responded yet, and he's still saying, God's still good. Great is his faithfulness, even though he's in the midst of despair. That we'd be able to say that not only in the good times, but also in the pain and also in the grief. That God is faithful and that His mercies are new each day. You pull your psalm books out and we'll sing imitation song. And we invite you to come to a loving, compassionate God.
who has promised to never leave you and never forsake you. That he will always be there and that his mercy is always there and that his compassion is always there for you. And to put your hope and your trust in him, to cast your cares upon him, to depend upon him. And even in the darkest of times and difficult despair that God is there to hear your cries for help and that he will carry you through. Who would not want to have that God to serve? Would you turn away from your sins? Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be a child of his and enter into that glorious relationship and that hope of eternal life and hope of a loving, compassionate God that you serve. Will you come to him tonight while we stand and while we sing?